Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 7, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, as our focus remains hyper-local to serve our immediate audience in the age of COVID. Today, Stephanie Campbell, local maven serving on many grassroots boards, will present the hefty roster of speakers lined up with the local chapter of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. In the second segment, I'll speak with labor organizer Austin Lynch about Anaheim workers championing their health, making the case to city and state leaders to delay the opening of the happiest place on earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Stephanie Campbell, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees and the Orange County Chapter Founding Member and President of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. In addition to her work with Americans United, Stephanie is a volunteer for the League of Women Voters and the County Action Coordinator for Compassion and Choices and speaks around the county for both organizations. Prior to her work with Americans United, she was active with the American Civil Liberties Union in Southern California, was an officer on the Southern California Regional Council, and is a certified speaker for the ACLU on religious rights, reproductive rights, and gay rights. She served on the board of Planned Parenthood. Stephanie is a tutor for illiterate adults through the Reed. Orange County program, which we've covered with another individual involved program some years ago. And Stephanie serves on the boards of Women for Orange County and the Newport Mesa Irvine branch of the American Association of University Women. She is a naturalized US citizen born in England and lived in Israel for two years prior to coming to the US. She completed her political science degree at the University of Washington and received her MBA from California State University, Fullerton. She comes to us today from her home in Costa Mesa. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Stephanie Campbell. Thank you so much for inviting me, Claudia. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure. We've been thinking about this for, for some time with so many things that you can say. We're going to limit it today to your work with Americans United for Separation of Church and State and that isn't really a limit at all. And I want to have you give us a little bit of like the origin story about the national organization, Americans United. I understand it was founded around 1948. And you can talk about some of the, the sectors that have been, that it's been involved with over those years. Okay, so we were actually founded in 1947. And we were founded by a coalition of mostly religious leaders, but also some educational leaders and some secular leaders. And the reason that they founded the organization was that there were proposals that were pending in Congress to extend government aid to private religious schools. And the concern was that this would violate our longstanding church-state separation 
and there was a need to organize around this. And so this group of people, mostly men, got active and the organization worked to educate the members of Congress and they were successful in their original work to uh, prevent the government aid to private religious schools. And then from there, they went on to state and, and local people to continue not giving aid to schools, which is primarily in the beginning was the real focus of the organization. The education and sector. Yes. The education sector. And they then started publishing the church and state magazine, which they still publish today. And they these activities, which became local and statewide, continue today. And then in the early 60s, there were new issues about government-sponsored prayer and Bible reading in public schools. And when that happened, once again, Congress decided that they should amend the Constitution to protect the right to pray in schools. And at that point, we were very kind of primary in defending this because we obviously we did not want anyone to compel people, children, to take part in religious worship. And the the ability to have voluntary student prayer remained legal and that was the way that it should be. And so we were successful there. And then in the late 70s, Jerry Falwell became super active and you know he was really pushing again on schools. And his campaign was to get fundamentalist theology into the schools. And then it was reformed in the 90s with Pat Robertson. And again, the, the focus was on public education. And I don't know if you're familiar with something called Project Blitz, but yes. Project Blitz is... We talked a little bit about that when Catherine Stewart was on several weeks ago. Oh, yes, you must with have. Power, yes. Power Worshippers yes. book. Mm -hmm. And so with Project Blitz, one of the things that they were doing was having In God We Trust uh, everywhere, and they were, again, focusing on the schools. And uh, so we continued to work with that. And then we started, although we still work very hard on the school issues and preventing school vouchers, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Montana case. Yes. Um, we've also expanded out into protection of gay rights, protection of reproductive freedom, and we've really expanded the organization into including people of all faiths and no faith at all, because our mission is to protect people to believe they want however they want to believe, and also if they choose not to believe, to protect that as well. A few things I want to say along that history line that you just gave us, Stephanie, is that in 1947, that's, if people say, oh, that was a different period, well, there, there was a McCarthy era overlaying all of the, that political climate there. So there, there, was, there were a lot of what I, I'm getting to, I'm talking about headwinds and tailwinds these days, because everything is taking a lot of work at, at once, especially in the last three and a half years. But in the four, late 40s, Americans United is 
is dealing around that. So that's pretty phenomenal. And I'm wondering if the 1970s, where there was a reinvigoration of effort, that that was sort of the beginning of the long game that the Federalist Society affiliates were sort of trying to ratchet upward the kind of intrusion of church activities in public places. So it's, and that, the, and you were probably the only organization that was sort of pairing their moves with your own organization. I think that that's very true. And one of the things that we look at today is the influence of the Federalist Society on court justice picks, judicial picks, which has become such a huge, huge problem. And uh, we were certainly very much aware of the problem. And if you go back to the Obama years and that last Supreme Court pick that he wanted to make that uh, he was not able to, you know, uh, I think that things would be different today if Merrick Garland was on the court. And the power of judicial appointments cannot be understated. So your involvement over the years, did you think that we'd be at the point we're at in 2020? Oh, I'm somewhat of a pessimist. And so my, my view is that we, we do well for a while and then everything gets retrenched and we have to do the same fights over again. I did not think that we would still be fighting for reproductive rights as we are today. And then things were positive with uh, marriage equality, which was wonderful. And uh, so there are steps forward and steps backward. But I, I think that the court today is a pretty scary place. And that really has been dictating so much of, of what we have been, been doing that it's, you know, it's hard to think about how, how are things going to get better. And, you know, it, it's difficult with Americans United because we are nonpartisan. And so we cannot get involved in elections or party politics. Uh, we can get involved in... Uh, what we would call movement politics. Yes, and we do get involved in supporting different, say, propositions that come on the ballot. And, uh, you know, we were very active uh, locally with Prop 8. Okay. And, and that was, was perfectly fine. But uh, we do not, you know, say, I support this candidate over that candidate. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest here on Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor is grassroots maven Stephanie Campbell, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees and Orange County Chapter President of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Well, you are here to tell us about what wonderful speaker roster you've got coming up and around the corner on July 18th, the first on the speaker roster we'll cover together today is Tahil Sharma. And the title of his talk will be Interfaith Literacy and Social Justice. What can people get 
to look forward to if they participate at this 2 p.m. in the afternoon. We'll give everybody means for logging in on that at the end of the show and in the podcast summary with the Tahil Sharma talk. But Tahil Sharma is, is very interesting. He, he became an activist following the uh, Sikh temple shooting in Wisconsin, which was, I believe, 2012. And following that, he became involved in efforts of interfaith literacy and social justice. And he's been doing that work now for the past six years. He has just taken on a new position where he is the regional coordinator for North America for the United Religions Initiative. And that is a international network of interfaith organizations, which is dedicated to peace and justice and equity. He also, uh, interestingly, serves as one of three interfaith ministers in residence for the Episcopal Diocese of really? Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's also the LA coordinator for Sadhana, which is a coalition of progressive Hindus. And he is very active in supporting different religious groups. And he's always looking at ways to educate and serve different communities. What he's looking for is interfaith cooperation. And he understands that uh, interfaith cooperation will actually include people of no faith at all. And I, I think that he will have a lot of interesting things to say, not only about what he's doing today, but also about his past and, you know, the impact that things like the, the Sikh temple shooting had on him. And so these are all, of course, virtual meetings. And this is allowing you a chance with Tahil and, well, he's a little bit more in the region, but other speakers that we'll talk about a little bit later is that these speakers can be from anywhere and it's really light on a nonprofit budget that you don't have the same kind of expenses of inviting a guest from outside of the region to come. So you're allowing for, got a larger roster of speakers you can have as well as you can have as many people in the room so as many listeners who are interested are able to join you in these. That is very true and one of the things that we are doing is working with some other groups in Orange and LA counties and you know reaching out to their members saying this time you don't have to travel to come to this meeting so please join us. And our August meeting will be with the the Reverend Neil Jones. Neil Jones is the chair of the National Board of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is also the humanist minister of the Mainline Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. And he's a clinical psychologist as well. He is speaking at our August meeting, and his topic is going to be religious liberty. Is it a sword or a shield? And it's always nice for us to have people who are ministers, people of faith, uh, because, you know, many of our uh, speakers are not. And uh, it's good, I think, to hear from someone who is a minister who is promoting the separation of church and state and understands its importance. I think that having religious people promote this is just critical to our endeavor. And in fact, on our national board, 
we have recently added the person who is the chair of the National Council of Churches and is a phenomenal person as well. And as you say, you know, normally we would not be able to have Neil speak to our chapter because he's in Philadelphia and it just becomes prohibitive in terms of his time. Traveling to California is no small task. And and then there's the expense of having someone travel to California. So we feel very fortunate that we're able to do this by Zoom. And when we were talking about how this is opening up this virtual meeting to more guest opportunities and more attendee opportunities. So if a listener, Stephanie, has an organization they want to be invited to this forum? Is there any topping off or let's just say somebody from the so-and-so organization, grassroots group, that they want to be inviting all of their membership? Is there any limit for them? We have for our, for our Zoom calls, we have a hundred person limit. Okay, that's where it is. So they can, they can bring themselves, but not their whole organization. <laughs> And we had, you know, as you had Catherine Stewart, so did we. Yes. And we had um, people from Women for Orange County attending. We had people from Atheists United in Los Angeles attending, as well as our own chapter. In fact, we did not widely advertise that because we knew we had so many different groups who were already planning on coming. You've got, and you got kind of close to that limit. You were, you were up to 70 almost, I think. If I've yes, I think so. So something yeah. like that. So that, that was a, a good size, a good size. So that's Neil Jones coming on August 15th. And before we talk about Rebecca Sager, how long then, if it's the sessions begin at 2 p.m. Pacific time, how long do people book these meetings to last? We generally plan for the meeting to be about an hour and a half. Okay. And we do some introductory stuff at the beginning. And then we like to have our speaker talk for somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes. And then we open it up to Q&A. And depending upon how Q&A goes, if it needs to go beyond the hour and a half, we do. When we had in-person meetings, which seems like such a long time ago now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we would always, you know, we cut off the Q&A. We kind of were watching to see, are people getting tired of this? Is it becoming repetitive? And so we'll say, okay, we're done. And then people would, would hang around to talk to the speaker after. And it's a little more difficult to do that on Zoom. But people do come and go out of the meeting. And then we just let them ask the questions that they want to ask. And the speakers are usually very responsive. Very good. And so on September 19th, Rebecca Sager will speak on the title of Church, State, and the Power of Evangelicals Under Trump. And uh, she'll be more regionally based. Talk about what she will do in September. So Rebecca is... Loyola Marymount of sociology, I believe. Yes. And she's much more academic than, than our other speakers, but she has done a lot of research into the changes that the evangelical community have made on politics. And I think that it will be particularly interesting this time because there is some 
fading away of evangelical support Trump. And so it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out. And I think that that is really what her focus will be. And we need to talk now. It's the Montana case that the Supreme Court ruled on the beginning of the week that we're recording this, folks, on July 3rd. So just to put an index there, it's the Espinosa Stillwater versus... It's the Montana Department of Revenue. Okay. Because they were challenging a Montana regulation of law. I think it was a constitutional measure, correct? Yes, it was. And that's critical because it's going to cast then a shadow over up to 27 or 28 other states that have similar provisions that would be uh, presumably challenged. So how is Americans United working with the aftermath of this decision, which I guess you all must have anticipated. We, we did anticipate to a certain extent, and this is to go back to your question about how do we feel about 2020 and, you know, right. we've come so far and uh, every once in a while something happens that thrusts us backward and this is a thrusting backward. I think that we will be going into state courts to protect different states where we can. Um, but yeah, once the Supreme Court has done this, it becomes extremely difficult. And I think that part of what we need to do is do a lot more lobbying uh, congressionally and on state levels and make people aware that this really requires people to fund, you know, taxpayer funding of religion and It is okay if it's your religion, but people don't seem to think through what happens when it's somebody else's religion that they don't want to support. Yeah, and that's been an interesting conversation is whether then, let's say an Islamic school will apply for some kind of public funding, what's going to happen with those that sort of, that are the infrastructure behind challenging the state's constitutional protections of their public funds related to religious institutions? I would think, although I don't know this for sure, but I would think that a lot of the objections will say, well, you can't do this because we have separation of church and state and we can't fund uh, Muslim schools. But this ruling indicates that, oh yes, you can. And so people have to really think through, think of the bigger picture of what they're doing when they uh, have something like this. And, you know, one of the issues that we have that's very strong on this is that these religious schools often will reject the rights of women, reject the rights of LGBTQ people, and they will not want to teach science. And there's been a lot of discriminating policies in the 12 religious schools in Montana's voucher program, and that's not going to go away. And what we're trying to do is, you know, have equal access for all. Well, you bring out one of the areas where there is a liability in institutionalizing religious schools, and I mean every word, one of those words very advisedly, that we are living in a pandemic where a societal response 
has to be coming from a deep appreciation of science. And Mike, I think everyone's concern is that the respect of the, that with the increased amount of funding for religious schools, then undermine, diminish the appreciation in the general, a broader public in science, which would guide a public response in public health crises. So I see this as one of the biggest hazards coming out besides the funding hemorrhaging, the public fund hemorrhaging toward a much more specific kind of academic agenda. I would agree with you. And one of the groups that we work very closely with is the National Center for Science Education, which is a California-based organization. And they work very hard on keeping science in the schools. And they really started their efforts on the teaching of evolution, which was a big thing, what, 10 years ago? And uh, they've continued to uh, work with schools on the importance of teaching about climate change and other scientific issues. And I just think that that is very important. And also, I think that the whole issue of vaccines is critical. I mean, you're already getting people saying, well, if they come up with a vaccine, I'm not going to do it. And so people- A pretty sizable number, too. That's, that, that does interfere with a herd immunity. So that it's pretty important that many people at the outset are denying the benefit of a vaccine. That is correct, and that is why science education is so incredibly important. I mean, I am a believer that if in schools you have students who have not been vaccinated, that they should not be allowed in public schools. I think the danger is too high. And we have, we've talked about that too with public health agency professionals too in the past on, on the show. And, and then in November is yet another meeting. There was nothing in October, Stephanie. Um, October, we will probably be showing a movie. We were originally going to be screening Robin Voss's new movie, but because everything has been on hold in the movie making world, that is not going to happen. But we will probably show a movie related to church state separation in October. And then in November, we are going to have Hans Johnson, who we have had speak before and who is excellent. He runs a group called Progressive Victory, and he's very involved in gay rights. And he's gonna speak about the impacts of the outcome of the election in November on gay rights, whichever way it goes. Oh, right, which, yeah. We, who knows? So how, tell us, Stephanie, how people can follow you, sign up for meetings, and contribute. What, what are some of the, the ways that can do that? The best way to do that is to go online to our website, which is au-oc.org. You can see the current meetings there. You can contribute there. You can donate. You can join the organization. And an annual membership is only $35. And it does include a very excellent monthly magazine, Church and State. You can also search for us for Americans United for Separation of Church and State on both Facebook and on Meetup. And if you join Meetup, then you'll see all the upcoming meetings and get an email invitation to that. 
there's a number you've posted. And is that if somebody wants a, a real voice because they're, they're that would be me, and they're more than welcome to call 714-299-4551. So that is a teaser only. There is so much more Stephanie could cover with all of her involvement and we're going to have her back on for another grassroots enterprise of hers and a personal experience. We'll have her on at a later date. Stephanie Campbell, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. It was a wonderful time. I really enjoyed talking with you, Claudia. Thank you. My guest was grassroots maven Stephanie Campbell. She's vice chair of the board of trustees and the Orange County chapter president and founding member of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. We'll be right back after station break with my next guest, Austin Lynch, director and negotiator at Unite Here Local 11. Don't go away. a leader. My next guest is Austin Lynch, director and negotiator at Unite Here Local 11, where he's been an organizer for 22 years, including advocating for municipal district elections in Anaheim, which led to similar districting in the cities of Fullerton, Buena Park, Garden Grove, and San Juan Capistrano. He's also successful in the 2016 to 2018 Disney contract negotiations that won 40% raises for thousands of resort workers and led to the passage of Measure L, the resort worker living wage in Anaheim. Austin completed his Bachelor of Arts in Political Philosophy at Yale. He comes to us today from his home in Bellflower. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Austin Lynch. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, Disneyland, located as most of us know, it's in Anaheim, California. It closed on March 14th. It was then slated to reopen the shopping district on July 9th. The park itself was to reopen on July 17th, but now it's closed indefinitely. We have essential workers' lives already at stake during this COVID-19 pandemic. Now add to those high stakes folks, the employees that were going to open Disneyland in Anaheim. So Austin, talk about all the types of jobs that your union represents. We represent food service and hotel workers, uh, which means we have 30,000 workers that we represent across LA, Orange County and Arizona. And at, uh, in Orange County, we have 6,000 members and about 3,000 of them are at the Disneyland Resort. They range from bell people to uh, valet, to uh, room attendants, dishwashers, cooks, bakers, cashiers, uh, servers, bartenders, that's the range. They run the three hotels at the resort and they serve all the other cast members, as they're called, uh, in the employee cafeterias that are scattered throughout the resort. 
And it's abundantly clear to all of us, every, with maybe one exception, all these jobs are in not just close quarters, but they're indoors. The, yes. Which is of concern. What all the epidemiologists are instructing me about is that is such a hazard zone. So that will keep that in mind as we're talking about how negotiations are continuing. I'm so glad that we have this really splendid opportunity to cover that with somebody who's been working way, way behind the scenes. So the Disneyland Park had proposed measures for opening. I went and I checked out what they had to say, and that's, there are no updates as of since their June 29th posting. So they say they want to manage attendance levels to reduce park capacity for physical distancing, requiring mandatory face coverings for staff and guests, temperature checks, limited contact enhancement like cashless transactions. What, Austin, what was it like for you to pour over those logistics and pour over those with your Unite Here 11 membership? Well, Disney is a, uh, a massive corporation, of course, and they're dealing with these health issues at very high levels. Uh, and then they, they release these, uh, these guidelines, many of which sound very good, others really are very good, and they, they give them to the local folks who are actually going to implement them. And they say, for instance, um, oh, you know, we will have staff uh, um, monitoring and enforcing social distancing. And then when it comes down to us, uh, we say, wonderful. Local folks, tell us, who are these people that are going to do this? And uh, they say, well, we don't, we don't know. We don't have an answer. So that's, that's understandable in, in such a big company. But when it's a matter of life and death, it's not acceptable. And so then I'm in this situation and my members are in this situation where we can't take that, even though we know it's, it's not bad intentions. You know, Disney wants to do a great job, but we can't settle for trusting that things will be okay when we're working indoors in one of the, you know, in a guest facing position in under these incredibly hazardous conditions. So then we have to push the company and say, no, you've got to tell us exactly who is going to be dedicated to making, to enforcing these rules. Uh, you know, we're in Orange County, a hotbed of anti-mask fanaticism. And so even more so, we need assurances that there's dedicated staff and, and, and that we know who they are that are going to enforce that. And so in preparation for this interview, you mentioned that Disney has the exposure to different kinds of local government responses to that. So I guess one of your large jobs is to keep reminding the corporate representatives about the fanatic kind of defiant science denying constituency swirling around Orange County. It's serious. I mean, I, I ran into it. I, it was like a real casual encounter, a stranger. They wanted to tell me about the pandemic. It wasn't even somebody yeah. with veins in their teeth yet. But so, it, so it's really pervasive. Yes, it is. So who, what kinds of representatives with Disneyland are you directly involved with, directly negotiating with? Disney has a labor relations department and uh, they are in charge of, of dealing with unions and they're, you know, they're very professional, responsive people. And, and Are they attorneys or are they other kinds of? Some of them are attorneys, but not necessarily. Many okay. of them are people who have been with the company a long time. Disney does a, um, a really good job of developing people from within, right. uh, which has many good sides and some bad sides. 
you know, the good side is that they often are dedicated to what they're doing. They, they, they know what they're talking about. The bad side is that sometimes when there's a blind spot or something they're not covering, it's very difficult to convince them to change what they're doing. To appeal to their... something is missing. To appeal to their good neighbor sensibilities. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Austin Lynch. He's director and negotiator at Unite Here 11, talking about the terms under which the Disneyland employees, you, you, I counted, you said about how many thousand? I counted 11,000, but that may be those in LA too. How many total that you're negotiating for? Well, I negotiate for 3,000 3, uh, Disney workers. 200 or so uh, are with a subcontractor and then 2,700 okay. or so are uh, directly for, for Disney. Okay. Uh, so, yes. Part of a much larger coalition, yeah. Uh, right. Well, I'd like to explore with you then all the levels of leadership which you have to negotiate to make the case for these worker safety. We're, I'd like to start with sort of the local government, the, that is the municipal leadership in Anaheim. And thanks to coverage like from the Voice of OC, I can't endorse enough for people to follow that news outlet. But so they're covering more that we'd see now about the Anaheim leadership picture. There's the County Board of Supervisor leadership picture. And then to the extent, Austin, you can talk about how much of a role that Governor Newsom has in leverage to make the case to corporations about worker safety in this pandemic. Yes. So uh, with the city of Anaheim, city, it's funny, uh, the city's uh, Facebook, their, their communications, they have a city spokesperson, which who you would think would be expressing the view, point of view of the city. But it's funny, every time he makes an announcement, it sounds like he's a cheerleader for Disney. They basically, the city uh, is always declaring that they agree with and, and support uh, almost anything that, that Disney is saying, even though there are not, uh, there's not unanimity within the city. For instance, uh, city council people, uh, Moreno and Barnes, right. are often saying things very different from what the mayor or what Disney is saying. And yet um, the city is, you know, is out there um, declaring a, a certain point of view. And so you can't, uh, I mean, the, the city basically takes the posture that they are an, an arm of the company and that their, their aim is to advance Disney's line, which in some cases I don't think is helpful to Disney. I think it would be better for all and concerned if the, if, if the city viewed itself as a, an independent, you know, a government that, you know, that speaks for itself and, and, and tries to represent all. But, uh, and Austin, does it look like a revolving door situation, kind of like uh, in the federal government, like Department of Defense and the industrial complex? Is there a sort of an entertainment industrial complex that feeds back Disney uh, VPs into some of the, the public relations of the municipal government? I think that there's a political faction that believes that the role of the city is to support unquestioningly uh, the, the aims of the corporation. That faction came, it, they act as though they're a, uh, you know, uh, uh, unchallenged, you know, monarchy over the city. But in fact, um, Harry Sidhu only won the mayor's seat by I think 400 votes, which is- Oh, is that? Oh, that's right. It was close. Yes. Uh, it was incredibly close. If he had lost, it'd be a totally different question. So actually, although they make it seem like the city is, you know, is organized, is, it's per reason for existence is to line up with the company. 
in fact, it, we, uh, the people of Anaheim, who I think a majority of them don't agree with that, were within a hair's breadth of, of very much changing that way of doing business. And the mayor was elected his last full term in 2018, correct? Just, right. Yeah. So he he's got two more years. Before, and then he was off for a while, and then he was, he was elected as mayor. And he, so he has two more years on this term. So, so that dynamic is important to, uh, to understand where there's levers. And the, so the city, to the extent you want to say of what kind of a partner they are in offering assurances about best practices in the name of public health. Right. So they're not, as far as I would say. I mean, what they ought to be doing is saying, oh, well, the... Um, you know the the unions and the company are speaking, and uh, we certainly we we you know support both of them and hope that they can reach an agreement. Instead, they say we declare that that Disney is safe. Well, wait a minute. If all of the unions and tens of thousands of workers are saying it's not, what role do you, you know? Where do you get off as a city declaring that that one side is right? But that's what they do, and it's actually not safe or healthy. And then the board of supervisors. You are represent the Anaheim is inside the third district, Don Wagner's district. Mm-hmm. Do I have that? Okay, and that's which is what also where Radio KUCI is housed. We're also in the third district. So, uh, I've, of course, uh, I've seen, I have evidence of how he conducts himself. So, how, what is the third district board member participation in assuring Disney workers of safety at the workplace? Um, it's a negative role. He has belittled the importance of the uh, and the danger of the, of the epidemic. He completely undermined their their former health officer. You know, instead of standing up for their for her when she got death threats, they they let her be pushed out and then immediately, you know, revoked the mask order that she had put into place. So I mean that's I, I would see his role as aiding and abetting and even encouraging the, the fanatics who, you know, are are saying that it's it's anti-freedom to put on a mask or to obey public health orders. So and you know, and then and then we the the uh, the Disney employees, we have to serve those folks, right? I mean they show up at the resort and um they are they are Disney fans, just like our members are. Uh and they wanna go and, and they wanna enjoy Disney, but they wanna do so without masks. They see that as an imposition. And so, you know, as frontline workers, we're trying to keep the place clean. We're trying to disinfect. We're trying to get food on the table. And at the same time, being put in the position of enforcing, you know, these rules, enforcing that people wear masks. And uh, having the supervisor basically spread the message that, you know, that that fanaticism is okay, it puts us in danger. But uh, it's, I'm shuddering. So, So Yes. If I could expand, you said yes, that- Yes, please do. You asked about you know, how we engage with these different levels of leadership, but I think is an interesting uh, way to put it. So for instance, with the, how do you engage with supervisors- How do you? Who, are, uh, you, know, vo- you know, who are taking on a negative role? Well, in that case, we had to unite with the, with the rest of the labor movement. And under the leadership of the Labor Federation, we went and held a press conference outside the supervisor's office. And we were mobbed by about 100 anti-mask fanatics. And um, they got right in our faces with no masks on and um, interrupted our press conference. And they thought they were doing a really smart thing. Uh, we were trying to call on the county to reinstate the mask rule. And they thought it was really you know, effective to, to be um, mocking us, telling us we had a pastor with us. They said that she worshiped Satan. 
all these things. And, but what happened was, you know, um, the, the county allowed that to happen, but um, then that got all over the news. And then two days later, the governor was uh, provoked by the widespread coverage of that to institute a statewide mask ban because it became clear that the local leadership was not protecting health. So, you know, the state stepped in. So that kind of, you know, when we take action, when we, when we stand up, then it, you know, it provoked a reaction from the fanatics. And that, that reaction helped us get a mask rule enforced, that, which was what we needed. And I watched most of his, the governor's press conferences, and it's a practically a contortionist act, him trying so hard not to lay a heavy hand on local government, but he knows the kind of defiance of public health that requires, you know, a very, very firm treatment, but he, it's, it's really an amazing exercise to watch. Epidemiologists will tell me they think he should come and lower the boom about that, but he knows there's pushback from those fanatics. So it's, so are there people from the governor's office that are, are they, they may be working with local government people, but they're not necessarily working with with union groups? No, absolutely. They have a, a task force on reopening. There yes. are union representatives on that. Okay. They're in touch with the governor's office. Uh, we sent, as a union coalition, we sent a letter to the governor saying, we absolutely want Disney to open as soon as it's safe, but it's not safe yet. And the governor um, didn't release theme parks to open after that letter. There was no official uh, you know, response to it which I can understand. But at the same time, he didn't issue a release. And, and so Disney, who had already announced that they were opening, even though they didn't have permission to open yet, were forced to delay the reopening. Again, we don't want them to uh, delay. We'd like them to open tomorrow as, to, as long as they do it with full safety measures. And that's what we're continuing to talk with them about and trying to, trying to arrive at. Are you and other union representatives involved in the business task force that County Board of Supervisors Wagner and Steele set up about, I don't know, it was about two and a half months ago. Are you involved with them or is it strictly corporate? As far as I know, that's strictly corporate. We're not oh. involved. Okay, well, that, they, that could have been something that might have been a productive move and a good political move on their part to have included union representatives. Hmm. I, I would think so. We've, you know, we're the ones who are uh, on the front line. So we know, we know what works and what doesn't. Okay. So this does beg the question of enforcement inside the park. I mean, I, I don't know, Austin, what kinds of assurances do you think you can secure, I mean, meaningful assurances? Because there's first there's this disclaimer that had been posted on, it's still on the Disneyland website that says, I'm quoting the, it's a disclaimer, quote, by visiting the Disneyland report, you voluntarily assume all risks related to exposure to COVID-19, end of quote. So that's like reading a non-disclosure agreement from the White House. And then board chairwoman Steele, her sort of position is, and I'm quoting from her now, everyone young and old are strongly encouraged to follow guidelines as outlined by federal, state, and local health officials, which include wearing face coverings, following good hygiene practices, including regular hand washing and adhering to social distancing. But that, again, that 
strongly encouraged to follow. So there are so many bets being hedged in what the Disney firm is forwarding and what the board of supervisors are, what they're establishing. How, what kinds of assurances are going to work for Unite Here 11 and the workers? Disney put out a, a safety framework. It was a good beginning. Uh, when was that? That was about a, uh, about a month ago, I guess. Okay. Um, and they said things like, for instance, that everybody will be required to wear a face covering on their property. Okay, that's good. That's, um, work, that's workers and guests. Workers and guests, yes. Yes. And they said, we're going to do increased cleaning. Okay, that's a good step. Then our job, though, is to come to them and say, great, tell us how you're going to increase cleaning. Show us in writing how you're going to increase staffing because if you say that, um, that you're going to increase cleaning, but you're going to have the same number of custodians cleaning the same lobby, then uh, you're setting them and yourselves up for failure because the same people can't do twice the work. So we want uh, a concrete commitment that you're going to increase staffing in order to accomplish double the cleaning. We want a guarantee in writing that the room attendants are going to have a smaller daily room quota because they always have a quota of how many rooms to clean in a day. They need to do less rooms so they can spend more time on each room and they need to clean it every day so that it's harder and more dangerous to clean in our view right. when, it, when you let it sit for uh, a bunch of days. So those are the specifics that make the plan actually work. Disney, we've, we've met many times, and some of them Disney has moved. They, for instance, at the beginning, they wanted workers only to take their own temperature at home. Uh, we pushed for temperature to be taken at the work site uh, of workers, and they agreed. We still want them to take the temperature of, of guests. Of the guests, and that's hotel. never been proposed by no, they, the, they the firm? Agreed, they have agreed to take the temperature of the guests as they enter the resort or downtown Disney, but if you do that and you don't take it also at the hotels, you're leaving a hole, and, and you know, in the, in the situation of a pandemic, right. um, you know, a safety net with a hole is not a safety net at all. We all fall through the hole. So, you know, uh, again, is Disney moving? Over the course of many discussions, yes. Um, they've been, they have been adding details. In my last conversation, just yesterday, okay. there was uh, a more of a, a specific commitment, although it was off the record, but to, um, to increase staffing levels. There was, you know, there's been movement on the temperatures. There's been movement on providing face shields in addition to uh, face masks. So that's all good, but there's still not, uh, there's no specific commitment on uh, the room attendants having the, you know, the, uh, the workload to actually, the work level to, to get the work done. There's also no commitment on testing. So that's a big problem because we're talking about a huge resort of 30,000 total workers, all of, almost all of whom work in teams. They don't work alone. And many of those teams cross over, they, they interact with, uh, with each other, they change locations. And so it's really, it's worrisome because we've had small restaurants across Orange County, open up, get one, two, or three positive cases, and have to shut down. Well, it's, it's much more complicated when, when you know, Disney gets, gets one positive in a department. But the problem is lots of people pass through that department. Right, right. Well, what do you shut down now? Do you shut down the entire resort again? Because there was a sick case in one kitchen, one cafeteria? You know, the, the subcontractor Sodexo in the employee cafeterias, everybody passes through those employee cafeterias. And Sodexo um, has not had serious discussions with us at all. So what good does it do to be super airtight in the rest of Disney? And then the employee cafeterias that everyone walks through 
are not secured. I um, think, yes. So those are the things that we have to have to push for. And, and part of the push is talking with the officials, uh, you know, who, who have the same end goal as us. They all want to open and stay open, not have to shut down again. And they're working hard on it. But, you know, sometimes they're the company above them doesn't want to commit to big things like testing. They keep saying no, 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 testing, no, testing, no. Well, I know that's not coming from the people in front of me. It's coming from the high ups who don't want to deal with it. But then, you know, the, the way that we move that is not just for me to talk my, you know, uh, talk their ears off, but for the members to take action, which is why we did our car caravan last weekend. Okay. Austin, though, it just keeps occurring to me, though, a much more pervasive problem with the culture change that must occur where everybody who comes in and out of that park is signed on to the necessity of wearing a face mask. I mean, all I have to do is just flip off the mask for, for one sentence, for one sneeze, and that mask isn't happening. That There are droplets that are on the move. I agree. Um, and, and so is, this, is the Disneyland company, are they recognizing that hazard and saying that they're, they're owning the public service necessity to instruct the public of, the, of this mandate, the importance, the, the public health requirement? In rhetoric, yes. In rhetoric, they say, mm -hmm. absolutely, we, uh, we, we require everyone to wear a mask. But the reality requires that you have a plan. What happens when that, uh, when that rule is violated? Because it will be. And to make it real, you, you got to be ready to do, have uh, real and thorough contact tracing uh, available for when the rules get violated. Uh, there will be positive cases. It's impossible to think that a resort that, that large would reopen and there would be no positive cases. So when, when they do occur, you've got to be immediately making free testing available to the person who tested positive and everybody who had close contact with them. And Disney's not yet, they're very resistant to that idea. So Austin, as we draw down in our time together, I just think there is a very pernicious assumption, I think, that needs to come out here in that does Disney, does the, the majority of the council members of Anaheim, does the County Board of Supervisors consider Disney employees, including Unite Here 11 employees, dispensable? And whatever happens to them, that's, we'll, we'll replace them with other work. Are they, are they willing to, do they seem like they're willing to burn through a, a labor force? Fundamentally, yes. Of course, they won't put it that way, but that's what their, their actions mean. And when they say, uh, oh, well, you know, um, uh, not everybody's getting sick. Many people who get the, you know, who get uh, COVID will, uh, won't die. But guess what? N nobody can say they don't know what the, what the media has reported, that uh, Black and Latino workers are more likely to die. So if you're not that serious about the virus, who are you, uh, you know, giving short thrift to? I think it's pretty obvious. Yes, well, I even um, am now boning up on the fact that it's not, it's not a matter of mortality. It's now, it's a morbidity factor that there are people that are not the same, even those who have recovered. I, I don't think that a recovered class of patients is an outcome that we should be comfortable with. I think some of them are so seriously maimed. I'm, 
going to be trying to raise the profile of how bad the recovered cases are in their actual health at that point. I agree with you. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out from what you're doing. Austin, I hope that you will check back in with us about what is taking place. We all really care about workers that are dealing with asymmetric negotiation settings. So I want to have a direct line with you so we can keep following what's going on. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you for caring enough to uh, to focus on this issue and shine a spotlight on it. My guest was Austin Lynch, director and negotiator for Unite Here 11, talking about the terms under which Disneyland employees are negotiating with that company for the safety of their working circumstances working once the Disneyland park reopens. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from organizers with UCI for COLA, who will bring us more union activism. That's Nalia Rodriguez and Courtney Eccles, COLA standing for Cost of Living Adjustments. They have a lot of movements and issues on their plate. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Together, let's flatten the learning curve. Everyone put on a face mask.